last week, we began a study of the fundamental, uh, you know, of, of fundamental Bible doctrines entitled the DNA of our faith. DNA of our faith. That's important. That's something that we need to know about. Doctrines necessary for application. That's the DNA of our faith. And even though every topic in this series is essential, today's topic um, or today's question, who is Jesus, is indisputably most important. Um, now, this series of messages, they may be a little different than what I normally do. These are more of a teaching style of message. Um, being home for all this time, um, I've watched all the reruns of Gunsmoke. Now, now I'm on wagon train, and I'm getting a lot of uh, study time in. And uh, so it's kind of fun, you know, the study time when you have time to do it and chase down all the little rabbit trails of things you run across while you're studying. And some of that I want to share with you. Well, today, the question, who is Jesus? I'm going to say is one of the most important questions that we could ever ask. Spurgeon once said this. He said, I've heard of preachers who can preach an entire sermon from beginning to end without ever mentioning the name of Jesus. And then he added, he said, if you ever hear that type of sermon, make sure it's the very last sermon you listen to from that preacher. <laughs> Jack Cottrell, he writes this. He said, Christianity is Christ. The entire Bible message revolves around and rests upon Jesus Christ. He alone makes the gospel grace possible. He alone has delivered us from sin's penalty. He alone has conquered death. The biblical teaching about Jesus is both the pinnacle and the bedrock of Christian doctrine. It's the most sublime and glorious doctrine of Scripture. And it is the foundation that upholds and gives meaning to everything else. And then he closes his quote, this little section that he's written, with Acts, the fourth chapter and verse 12. He said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So I believe that there is nothing more important than the accurate and resolute answer to the question, who is Jesus? Can you answer that? Who is Jesus? Now, every one of us needs to get a handle on this. We think that we know. We're Christians. We know who Jesus is. But do we really do we really know who Jesus is? Now, the, the clearest and the best answer to that question is given in the 16th chapter of Matthew. And that's where this message will come from. Now, just a little bit of backstory so you can get in the mood. It helps me to understand what's going on if I can put myself into the, into the picture here. Now, this was the, the end or near the end of our Lord's ministry and the, the multitudes, they were just pushing him and agging him on to become a political deliverer. And you see, and those people, they wanted to see Jesus use his miracle power, you know, to overthrow Rome. Because Jesus was so great, they wanted him to just obliterate everybody and overthrow Rome. And in the meantime, what was going on, the Jerusalem establishment, they had labeled Jesus a dangerous heretic. 
Um, and they were already plotting to put him to death. I mean, they didn't like him. So Jesus took his 12 disciples to Caesarea Philippi in the northernmost point of Palestine there. And that was 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And it was at this, the foot of this snow-covered Mount Hermon. And this was a beautiful, it was cool, it was green, it was an elevated place. And this place was where natural springs and melted snow, it kind of formed the headwaters of the Jordan. So you can kind of put yourself in this place. It's like, this is really a nice place. Well, Jesus, what he had done, he had retreated from the heat and the political pressures that were around him of the Galilean lowlands. So he retreated. He come to this place at the foot of Mount Hermon. And his plan was to complete his training of the 12 because he knew that he wouldn't be on earth much longer. So you get the picture here. Jesus pulls his disciples away to this, this place here at Mount Hermon, and he wanted to finish up his, his teaching before he left. Now, it is really significant that Jesus chose this particular location to give his men their final oral exam, this place right here. Caesarea Philippi, it was a center of pagan worship. You know, as a matter of fact, it contained 14 um, different shrines to the Syrian god Baal and a great marble temple that Herod the, the Great had built and dedicated to the worship of Caesar, uh, of Caesar. So you can see this was a place of all kinds of religious activity going on. But probably the most significant um, was a temple to the Greek god Pan, you know, who mythology says was born in a cave right at the foot of Mount Hermon. Well, it was in this place right here where Jesus, um, where it was at this place where many gods were worshipped. And Jesus chose to ask his disciples two questions about what they believed and who he was. In other words, they were like, what do you believe I am? And it was this very place and in the surrounding of all these gods and, and different types of worship that was going on. And folks, the, question, the two questions that he asked his disciples there, each of us as disciples, we must consider two. Two very important questions. In Matthew 16, in verse 13, Jesus asked the first question. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, the expression, the Son of Man, it was Jesus' favorite for himself. Matter of fact, it was used like 80 times in the New Testament. And it's a title emphasizing the Lord's humanness, his humanity, and suffering. You can see all those things in this title. Well, who do men say I am? The disciples' reply is interesting. Going on to verse 14 there. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Now understand, this was, these were the nice things that people were saying about Jesus. I mean, think about this. John the Baptist, he had been very popular, but his dynamic ministry was suddenly ended by his execution. And then, but since like John, Jesus had preached that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, some believe that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. And now Elijah, he perhaps the greatest of the prophets, 
He called down fire from heaven, and just like Jesus, he demonstrated great miracle power. In Malachi, the fourth chapter, verse 5, it prophesied that Elisha, he would return just before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You know, maybe God was about to judge the world, or maybe Jesus was Elijah returned, making or marking the beginning of the end. You know, that's what some people were thinking. And yet others thought that Jesus was Jeremiah returned. You know, the great weeping prophet, he foretold the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And the, apop- the apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees, told how Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant before Jerusalem's fall so it wouldn't fall into the hands of the Babylonians. So many people believe that, that Jeremiah would return to restore the Ark just before the promised Messiah appeared. So what you have here is when you sum all that up, Yes, some saw Jesus as the character and message of John. Um, some saw Jesus as, you know, the fire and intensity of Elijah. And then some saw Jesus as the lament and, and uh, the grief of Jeremiah. But the point is this. When you look at that and what others saw, all these people, they saw Jesus as a forerunner or a precursor of the Messiah, but not actually the Messiah himself. That's what these people were seeing. And as I said before, these were the nice things that people were saying about Jesus. Others called him a troublemaker, a blasphemer, a false teacher, a traitor, a bastard son of a Roman soldier, a drunkard, a whoremonger, a revolutionary, a mystic dreamer with delusions of of grandeur. And you know what? In 2,000 years, things haven't changed much. Still today, if you ask the question, who do men say the Son of Man is, what answers do you think you'd get? If you just ask people. You know, you'd get a variety of answers. Um, Some would contain the truth. Some would contain half-truths. And some are just outright lies. But most always... The answers of men about Jesus is inadequate and they kind of fall short of the point. You know, men say that Jesus was a great teacher, perhaps even the greatest social and ethical philosopher and religious leader who ever lived. All kinds of people can claim those things. Napoleon said this, I know men and Jesus was no mere man. Um, Diderot, he called Jesus the unsurpassed. It was Strauss, the German rationalist, said Jesus, the highest model of religion. John Stuart Mill called him the guide of humanity. The French atheist, um, Renan, he said that Jesus was greatest among the son of men. Theodore Parker called him a youth with God in his heart. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice heralded Jesus as the ultimate superstar. Folks, as flattering as all those comments may be, none of those men really understood who Jesus was or why he came or what he did. Judas, the hero of the the rock opera superstar, he never found the, the answer to the ultimate question. He said, Jesus Christ superstar, who are you? You know, what have you sacrificed? I only want to know. Which brings us to the second point of this message. Look at verse 15. It's the second question. 
after all these inadequate answers that Jesus got, he asked his disciples, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Now, like I say, I like to put myself in this picture. I can see myself sitting here and the other 12 disciples sitting here. And when Jesus looked each of us in the eyes and said, but what about you? Who do you say I am? You know, I can imagine there was just this long, uncomfortable silence as they were looking at one another, you know, like wondering what to say before Simon Peter answered for the 12. And then in verse 16, you see where he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I imagine at that point, the Lord's face just lit up like the sky on the 4th of July, thinking, bingo, Peter, you've got it. Finally, you understand. Now you see Peter's perfect answer here, it contains two very important parts. Number one, it tells us exactly what Jesus did. And number two, exactly who Jesus is. And folks, those are the two most important questions in the world. Who is this Jesus and what has he done for us? Can we answer that question? Who is this Jesus and what has he done for us? I want to start with the second part of Peter's answer. Who is Jesus? Well, Peter, he said, he is the son of the living God. Now, Jesus had already called himself the son of man, emphasizing the fullness of his humanity. He'd already done that. But when Peter called him the son of God, it was asserting that Jesus was also fully divine. You see, that he was in essence nature and character and purpose and, of, and power of God in the flesh. Now, certainly, there are people today who argue that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Well, let me tell you something. They're wrong. <laughs> They're wrong. Because the very title the Son of God, is an absolute statement of the unique deity of Jesus. And if you examine the way that this title was used in Jesus' day by both pagans and the Jews, it becomes crystal clear. For an example, in John 5, in verse 17, Jesus referred to God as my Father. Well, let me tell you something. When he did that, that shook up. Um, people. In fact, the Bible says when they heard it in, in, in verse 18, they immediately sought to kill him for blasphemy. And they said by calling God his own father, he was making himself equal with God. And then in chapter 10, it happened again. You know, there the Jews actually, they picked up stones. They were really ready to go after him. Verse 33 said, You, a mere man, make yourself out to be God. And then Jesus answered, look at verse 36 and following. He says, Then why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Don't believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles. So you know, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And again, they tried to seize him. Folks, very clearly, 
Jesus did claim to be divine, to be un, uh, uniquely uh, one with God, and his miracles were the proof. In John, the fifth chapter, verse 21, a paraphrase, Jesus is telling us, as the Son of God, I give life to whomever I please. Um, then he said uh, he, would be, he was to be honored just as God was honored. And he said if, if one does not honor the Son, he does not honor the Father who sent him. The bottom line is, folks, to confess that Jesus is the Son of the living God is also um, to acknowledge his divine nature when we say that. It's to confess that Jesus was God in the flesh. I know in, in John, the first chapter, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in the 14th verse, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or lived for a while, depending on which version you have. In Philippians, the second chapter, in verse 6, 7 and 8, um, Jesus tells us, paraphrase, he existed in eternity past in the form of God, but did not think equality with God something to be grasped or something to be clung to. So he gave it up and he humbled himself, became a man and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. All that in order to meet our need for a Savior. Now, not everyone, of course, believes that God was incarnate. Not even, not everyone that's a Christian believes that. Today, there, there are many theologians and churches. They claim to follow Christ, yet they deny, they deny this fundamental doctrine. I really don't understand why they do, because the Bible repeatedly warns about them. In 1 John chapter 4, and verse 1, 1 through 3, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. You know what? I think that would be important. Do you? I think that's an important thing. Whenever someone tells you they want to teach you about God, first question you need to ask them is, what do you believe about Jesus? You know, what do you know about Jesus here? In 2 John, and verse 7, the apostle writes, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you knew... Do not lose what you have worked for. And then he goes on to say here in verse 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome him. For anyone who welcomes him shares in this wicked work. Now I know it's not a politically correct thing to say. And of course you know what I feel about being politically correct. Biblically correct outrules anything that's politically correct. Every time. Now, if it's politically correct as well as biblically correct, we're in tune. But otherwise, we're out of tune. And biblically correct is the only way, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I know it's not biblically correct to say, but folks, all religions, all churches are not the same. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is. You know, it was no accident 
that Jesus asked this question amid a background littered with temples and shrines and centers of uh, religious activity. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, to come to the Father, you must believe the right things about Jesus the Christ. First, you must be right about who He is. You must also, you must understand and embrace what He did. It's all in one package. Because see, Jesus, you know, for what Jesus came to do is very much a part of who He is. You can't separate those two. So Peter began his, his confession with these words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, it's a shame, but some people think that Christ is the Lord's last name. You know, instead of Jesus Smith or Jesus Jones, He's just Jesus Christ. But the word Christ is like Son of God. It's a title. You see, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. So to say Jesus Christ is the same as Jesus Messiah, which is a song I dearly love when we do it here. Now, all the way back in Genesis, the third chapter, God promised that someday He would send a Messiah to undo the, re the results of sin. And throughout the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of a coming Messiah. Literally, understand that Messiah or Christ means the anointed one, you know, or ordained by God for a special work. And this is really important to understand this. Throughout history, God anointed, He anointed many men and many women for special works who were all forerunners or foreshadows of the Messiah who was to come. But the Jews, they, always, they were always looking for this special one who would come from God and thus the ultimate anointed one and the one to fully and completely... Um, to complete God's redemptive work among men. Now, in the Old Testament, there's three offices of people who were anointed. Now, this is important. You've heard me say before, the Old Testament is our schoolmaster. So this is important to learn. There were three offices of people who were anointed. In other words, there were three distinct messianic functions there. And the promised Messiah would fulfill all three of these functions in a unique and ultimate way. And Jesus did exactly that because He was the Christ. Now, listen to this. First of all, as the Christ, Jesus was anointed prophet. As the Christ, Jesus was anointed prophet. Now, what is a prophet? A prophet is a spokesman for someone else one who reveals the mind of another. Every prophet of God spoke um, God's message to God's people. And Jesus did it like no other. He was the best. You know, He revealed to us the mind, the heart, the character, and the nature of God in the highest possible way. In John 14, verse 9, you know, about the middle of the verse, he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And then in Hebrews, 
um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, who He anointed, heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. Look at this. The exact representation of His being. Now, of course, Jesus was not the only revealer of God, and Jesus was not the last individual through whom revelation was given. And teaching us about God was not the primary or the most necessary work of Jesus. But Jesus, as the Christ, was and is the greatest anointed prophet. Secondly, as the Christ, Jesus is the anointed priest. Jesus is the anointed priest. Now, what is a priest? A priest is an intercessor between God and man. Specifically, the work of a priest is to offer sacrifice on behalf of others, making them acceptable to God. That's what a priest does. In, in, in Exodus, the 29th chapter, Aaron and his sons were anointed um, the first priest over Israel. We know that you, you Bible scholars, you know that. But now Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Matter of fact, the, the whole book of Hebrews teaches us of the superiority um, of the priesthood over that of Aaron's family. Jesus was, was the high priest. Um, because Jesus, he offered himself the, the perfect sacrifice, the ultimate propitiation that appeases God's wrath and makes it accessible, um, acceptable in God's sight. Jesus was our Redeemer. He was, as John the Baptist said in John the first chapter, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in 1 Peter um, chapter 3 and verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all by um, the just for the unjust to bring you to God. And in Hebrews the ninth chapter, verses 27 28, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was offered once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus is our high priest, the mediator between God and man. In Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, it says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess or profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been, a, been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. A friend tells a story of a Christian lady who was dying, and because her minister, her preacher, was out of town, out of the country, matter of fact, a um, sweet Catholic neighbor asked her priest to visit her friend before she died. And the priest, he kindly, he talked to the lady, and he read scripture, to, he read to her scripture. And, but then he asked, 
this priest asked, he said, I wonder before I leave, are there any sins that you would have me to forgive? And this old lady with the glory of Jesus right on her face said, Sir, would you please show me your hands? The priest thought this was kind of an unusual request, but he did show her her hands, and she examined them, and she said, I'm sorry, but you cannot forgive my sins. My Savior had nails in his hands. Amen. Folks, if you are a Christian, please understand you need no other intercessor to approach the Father. Jesus is our intercessor. You need no human absolution. You don't ever need to invoke the, you know, to uh, invoke the aid of Mary or, or other saints because Jesus the Christ stands before the Father on your behalf and my behalf. Thirdly, the ultimate sacrifice of the Christ, Jesus is the anointed king. He's the anointed king. Now, a king rules with authority and power over his subjects. The scripture says in 1 Timothy that Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. And in the 11th chapter of Revelation, and he shall reign forever and ever, the scripture says. So when you confess Jesus as Christ, you are confessing that Jesus is the prophet by which you have come to know the Father. That's one thing that he gives us. Then the second thing, you know, when you confess that Jesus, is, he's the high priest by which you may enter into his presence. That's something that he gives you. And then Jesus is your king, your master, the ultimate, the highest authority in your life. And that's something he gives you. So when you ask the question what he's given you, He's given you a prophet, a priest, and a king here. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who He is, and that's what He does for us. Now, the Bible calls Him many names. You know, to the artist, He's the one altogether lovely. To the architect, He's the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, He's the son of righteousness. To the baker, He's the living bread. To the biologist, he's life. To the builder, he's a sure foundation. To the carpenter, he's the door. To the doctor, he's a great physician. To the educator, he's a great teacher. To the engineer, he's the new and living way. To the farmer, he's the sower and the Lord of harvest. To the florist, he's the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. To the geologist, he's the rock of ages. To the judge, he's the righteous judge, the judge of all men. To the juror, he's the faithful and true witness. To the jeweler, he's the pearl of great price. To the lawyer, he's the counselor, the lawgiver, and the advocate. To the journalist, he's the good tidings of great joy. To the occultist, he's the light of the eyes. To the philanthropist, he's the wisdom of God. To the preacher, he's the word of God. To the sculptor, he's the living stone. To the servant, he is the good master. But to all, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Amen? Amen. Remember this old course? I love it. And I especially love it played on our hand chimes. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name 
Master, Savior, Jesus, like a fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Bill Gaither wrote that song in the 60s, and it shot up the gospel charts, and it captivated the Christian audience. But the great secret of its popularity was that it simply lifted up the wonderful name of Jesus. That's why it went to the top. And in the very midst of that song, as it was originally accorded, uh, recorded, was Gloria Gaither, she shared this reading right in the middle of the song. Jesus, the mere mention of his name, can calm the storm, heal the broken, raise the dead. Why, at the name of Jesus, I've seen sin-hardened uh, sin men melted, derelicts transformed, and lights of hope put in the eyes of the hopeless child. I've heard a mother whisper his name at the bedside of a child, delirious with fever, and I've watched that child's body be still in the fever break. I've watched a dying saint, her body racked with pain, and in the last fleeting seconds summon her last ounce of strength to whisper her sweetest name, Jesus, oh Jesus. Emperor, emperors have tried to destroy it. Tyrants have tried to wash it away from the very face of the earth with the blood of those who claimed it, and yet it still stands. And there shall be that final day in which every voice that has ever uttered a word, every voice of Adam's race shall combine in one mighty chorus to proclaim the name of Jesus. For you see, in that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Let me quickly end this message with our Lord's response to Peter's confession. In verse 17 and verse 18, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Three things we need to see real quickly. Folk, salvation, the church, victory over hell, all is built on this con confession of faith. All those things are. Your eternity and the kingdom of God all hang on your faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you don't get that, you've missed the foundation and your house of faith has no cornerstone. And the second thing is this. This faith, this knowledge of God does not come to man through flesh and blood. You know, I can sit here and I can teach you what the Bible says about Jesus, but ultimately, God must reveal it to you in your heart. You see, it's not enough to know about Jesus. God's desire is that you have a personal relationship with Him, that you know Him and His work in a most personal and infinite way. It's one thing to know about Jesus, but it's another thing to know Jesus. Amen. It's a big thing. So each of you must search your heart and find this faith. And finally, number three, just as Christ promised to Peter, all are blessed who come to know and confess this Jesus. You see, blessing is a state of contentment. Blessing is a state of peace. 
Blessing is a state of joy that is just intrinsic to the nature of God. When you, in faith, when you make this confession of Jesus, when you acknowledge that He is God come in the flesh, the only Son of the Father, that He is the Christ, your prophet, your priest, your king, you too can partake of His divine nature and know His blessing. So we come just immediately now to our invitation right after this prayer time. Let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we pray that your word has opened our eyes to see who you are. Father, we pray that as disciples, if anyone ever asks us who you are, we can give them the answer. We can tell them what who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, we pray that we would study that till we know it. And we can share it everywhere we go. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.